Good afternoon. You're listening to 9.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Leonard Schlein, who will discuss the ideas in his book, Sex, Time, and Power, How Women's Sexuality Shaped Human Evolution. Also, there'll be Mo Vloggin with Jimmy Lin. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad, not too bad. You seem excited today. I'm Most volatile. I'm well I'm always brimming on the edge of excitement and bubbling brimming. with excitability. So uh do you uh, get excited uh, regularly or on uh, some random basis? Well you know I'm always just sort of generally excited. Besides, you know, it is the Calix fundraiser, by the way, this week, so uh, I'll I'll just mention that right away really quickly. But definitely call and pledge to Calix. A lot of great programming on the Calix, including the Berkeley Grocks. So show your support for quality programming. That uh, Give them a call, 510-642-KALX, 510-642-5259, and pledge what you can to support quality programming you can't get anywhere else. That almost sounds like a PBS plug, but anyway. <laughs> this is something similar uh, geologists have been using to describe the Steamboat Geyser. The Steamboat Geyser. What is the Steamboat Geyser? Well, unlike Old Faithful, Steamboat Geyser is uh, erupts and gets excited in a very uh, irregular basis. So they can't really predict when it's going to erupt. No, it, it could be as short as you know a few days between eruptions or 50 years. Wow. wow. And no one really knows what the correlation is. So actually, as of this year, there's been two major eruptions, and a lot of geologists have been uh, paying closer attention to see what could be the underlying mechanism for those eruptions. And what do they think? Uh, it's very hard to tell because they have almost no data in terms of like, <laughs> the heat and mechanics yeah. of what underlies underlying They're trying to get more research money. If, if anything needs to be studied, I think it's the, the steamboat geyser because I think most men are interested in controlling the eruptions. Right, which for this one goes up to 300 feet. Can you do yeah. that, Charles? No, but I think if I answer some of these Internet uh, ads, maybe. <laughs> That's what they promise, anyway. <laughs> Anyways, incidentally, it turns out that this geyser is also the world's only acidic geyser. So do they... Want to put your hands there and burn yourself off. <laughs> I guess I'll go with some ammonia and neutralize uh... <laughs> it. All right. So if anyone wants to know more, they can go to the website for the Yellowstone National Park at www.mps.gov/yell. <laughs> All right, well, once you've controlled your eruptions, you can uh, take time and saunter across a partially formed land bridge and migrate to North America. Wow, you mean chilling out. That's another thing as well. Uh, but as you well know, the uh, prevailing idea of how North America was settled by the early Native Americans was that they crossed a land bridge mm-hmm. over the Bering Strait. To Alaska. Right. And so that's perhaps why a lot of Native Americans bear a lot strong resemblance to many North Asian populations as well. Mm-hmm. But there's been a big mystery recently with a fossil known as the 9,000-year-old Kennewick man, and uh, he doesn't bear resemblance to the classical Native American features. Hmm. 
And so a team headed by Rolando Gonzalez-Jose of the University of Barcelona took measurements of 33 skulls found near where the Kennewick Man was found, Mm -hmm. and they compared that with uh, known geographical common skull features, and they found that it resembled more closely South Asian populations, some that are still in place today. Wow. Which suggests that North America wasn't just populated by one group crossing the land bridge, perhaps by several groups. Wow, so some tribes may have built some boats or some sort of vehicle to let them... That's certainly possible, and uh, they think this is possibly the same types of groups that might have settled early Australia, the Aboriginal groups that wound up there. Uh, One of the features that seems to be similar between Asians and American Indians is that when they're born, they all have a blue birthmark near their butt. Is that right? Yeah, and it disappears. Oh, that's kind of cool. I wonder if it's any shape or something. I think I lost one a long time ago. I I think it's the mark of the chosen people, but I'm not sure. (laughs) The chosen ones. I still have a blue butt, but I'm not sure why. (laughs) Must be the arsenic (laughs) Could be be the deoxygenated blood. But if people want to learn more about that, it's published in the uh, recent edition of Nature. Okay, so moving along from planetary stories, let's get out of the world. The world of planets? Just uh, going on to Mars, actually. So have, you ever, have you ever wondered why Mars is so red? Uh, I thought it was like due to the uh, higher amounts of iron, or maybe it was just embarrassed. <laughs> You're right on account of, of the iron, but how did the iron get oxidized? Before, we thought that liquid water from Mars rusted these rocks with high iron content, but finding from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory suggests that there could be other mechanisms involved. But there should be oxygen in the atmosphere, too, right? Right, but the source of the, the iron, some believe, comes from meteorites oh, okay. with high contents of iron and magnesium that bombard the surface. And it suggested that the, uh, the top surface seems to have a much higher content of both of these minerals than within the surface of Mars. Okay. And what they've done in these model test is that they expose metallic iron to ultraviolet light and conditions the atmosphere similar to what's at the surface of Mars, and they've been able to show that this iron will also rust. So they're saying most of the iron that's rusting came from uh, comets? Yeah, it came from comets, meteorites, and other objects. So they were, these metals rusted without water. They're rusting without water? Right. Just by UV radiation and, and all that? And the gases. Huh. So this may have sense to reconsider how likely that Mars could sustain life if there was less water than we had thought there would be. Cool. And if anyone wants to know more? You can go to the JPL website. This was work led by Albert Yen at NASA's JPL. Frank, and you know it's that time of year again where it's the uh, Calyx fundraiser, and uh, you know what that means? Uh, double chocolate ice cream? No, as I'm sure everyone out there would appreciate some double chocolate ice cream on hot day like today. Uh, that is not one of the Calyx fundraising gifts. What we do have, though, is uh, the Calyx fundraiser, which is going on right now. As many of you know, a significant portion of our annual budget does come from you, our community of listeners. Your tax-deductible contribution does help keep Calyx broadcasting the programs you know and love. Anyway, so uh, for those of you who are interested in donating to Calyx, we have set up a number for you, 510-642-KALX, 510-642-5259, and it's the number to call if you want to donate some money. We do have some fine thank you gifts, so for a donation of $30 or more, what can they get? Uh, Medium large pizza. No, no, not pizza. We have a Calyx bumper sticker, Calyx magnetic poetry, and a program guide, which is very good. Uh, for $50 or more, you can get... Kimchi. <laughs> no kimchi. I'll, if you want kimchi, we could probably get it for you. Uh, a Calyx short sleeve t-shirt, Calyx bumper sticker, Calyx magnetic poetry, and a program guide. For $95 or more, you can get the Calyx long sleeve zip-up hooded sweatshirt. 
They got a great logo this year as well. The Calyx bumper sticker, Calyx magnetic poetry, and the program guide. And for the $115 or more donation, you'll get Calyx long sleeve zip up hooded sweatshirt, Calyx short sleeve t-shirt, Calyx bumper sticker, Calyx magnetic poetry, and a program guide. And of course you can add on for any other pledges. Great cool stuff. Call 510-642-5259, 510-642-KALX, especially now during the Berkeley Grocks. Because as an added special bonus, if you call during the Berkeley Grox, we will throw in, and mind you, this is not something we do for every caller, we're going to throw in the Grand Unify Theory for the nature of the universe. Isn't that cool? Wow. I know it's cool. Anyway, give us a call, 642-5259-642-KALX. And with that, we end our look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. Coming up next, Dr. Leonard Schlein will join us to discuss the ideas in his book, Sex, Time, and Power, How Female Sexuality Shaped Human Evolution. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, how did humans evolve to become the world's dominating species? Many theories have been proposed that suggest such innovations as tool use and societal cooperation, but these may have been superseded by the evolution of a concept of time, driven perhaps, as one new theory suggests, by the female menstrual cycle. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss this theory is Dr. Leonard Schlein. Dr. Schlein is the previous author of such best-selling books as The Art and Physics and The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, and he's the author of the new book, Sex, Time, and Power, How Women's Sexuality Shaped Human Evolution. Dr. Schlein, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Thank you. I'm a pleasure to be here. You've written a very fascinating book, Sex, Time, and Power. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just curious if you could give us an idea of what the main concept of, of your book here is. Well, I think that a major catastrophe befell the human species at its very outset 150,000 years ago, which we now know from molecular biology was the birth of our Homo sapiens, uh, give or take 10,000 years on either side. We humans have two physical attributes that are mutually incompatible that distinguish us. The first one is that we are the only bipedal, heel-to-toe walking animal on the face of the planet. And we stood up about four and a half million years ago. Nobody quite knows why we stood up. It doesn't seem to have been a great advantage. We didn't start using tools for another couple million years, uh, stone tools, that is. So, you know, when you stand up, no predator that you could outrun, and there's certainly no prey you could run after and catch with your bare hands. But for whatever reason, once we stood up, a very unusual thing happened, and that is that we now had positioned directly above our anus a massive intestines, and we are the only animal that is at risk for being turned inside out if you go for a stroll after a particularly heavy lunch. I mean, this is a gravitational hazard that does not exist for any other animal. So what happened is if you look at the picture of or any drawing of the human pelvis, it's shaped like a gigantic bowl. It's designed to contain these intestines and prevent, you from, prevent them from falling out correctly. 
the hole in the pelvis is actually quite small compared to other animals. And everything was fine until our brains underwent this hyperinflation routine beginning about 500,000 years ago. And we added a whole pound of brain tissue. That's a lot of brain tissue in the space of a very short couple hundred thousand years. So Homo sapiens begins with this enormously big brain baby Mm -hmm. sitting above this extremely tiny bony hole. Mm -hmm. And the human female began to have extraordinary difficulty delivering her young. We are the only species where the female, when she goes into labor, immediately calls for help. And there is no other complex species that has the rate of maternal mortality that exists among humans. So this is an extraordinary development because this is a wasteful reproductive strategy. You know, young women dying, if you uh, were to um, examine the, the dates on tombstones of any graveyard prior to the 20th century, you're struck by the extraordinary young ages that women died, and the majority of them died in childbirth. Mm. So this is a a very unusual development because whenever an environmental stress affects a species, acting on them like an ice age or parasites or, you know, new predator or drought, it afflicts both the males and the females. But here you had an environmental stress that was actually an internal one that was threatening the lives of the women but not the men. So women needed to develop enough mental cognition to figure out the connection between sex and pregnancy. There's three million sexually reproducing species out there doing it, and there's nothing in their observable behavior to indicate that any of them have the slightest idea what the function of this activity is. But some woman somewhere said, wait a minute, this kicking in my belly is the direct result of this transient moment of pleasure I had with this man five months ago. And then she extrapolates into the future, and she realizes that she could die as a result of having sex. Now, there's no other female of any other species that has to be concerned about that. So as a result, the human female gains a power that changed everything, and that is she gained the power to refuse sex when she was ovulating. Now, when other females like chimpanzees or lions are are in estrus or heat or running season, whatever you want to call it, it's the female that actively solicits sex from the male Mm -hmm. in many species. So this power, this veto power over sex, which, as every man listening to this program knows, changed everything was greatly aided by an adaptation that was occurring to the human male that was going in the opposite direction. And that is, where she gained control over her sex drive, he was losing it. So the human male became the most sex-crazed male of any other species. When a young male entering puberty has a 20 to 40-fold rise in serum testosterone levels, his brain is literally soaking in a vat, a cranial vat laced with testosterone. I mean, every man can remember with crystalline clarity the moment in his passage into manhood when (laughs) suddenly dawned on him that girls were not just soft boys. So the human male wants to have sex all the time, particularly young males. Mm. And there's no other animal that does that. I mean, a stallion would never think to try to mount a mare who wasn't in heat. Mm. If he did, she'd kick him in a sensitive area. That'd be the end of him. (laughs) So the first male must have gone up to the first female going, come on, baby, let's do it. And she looked at him and she said, you know what, you smell bad, you're ugly, you're stupid, we're not doing it. And he was confounded because no male of any other species had ever confronted a female with a mind of her own. So the question is, how is it that the human female was able to acquire this extraordinary capacity to figure out a connection between two events that were separated by months, uh, the first signs of pregnancy and the prior sex? You know, no matter how smart some animals are like dogs and seals and dolphins and you can train them to do the most amazing tricks but the one trick you cannot train a dog to do is say i want you to meet me on the street corner in two weeks (laughs) he he will not show up okay 
no lions on the Serengeti are sitting there thinking about what they're planning next Thursday. I mean, uh-huh. other animals don't think in the de- maneuver in the dimension of time like humans do. So if foresight has proven to be our ultimate weapon of mass destruction, that we've, al- we've been able to make extinct huge masses of other species of large animals primarily because no matter how massive, how dangerous, how agile, how fast they are, it doesn't matter. We'll kill them because we can outsmart them. So it seems extraordinary that only one animal has foresight. Some animals can think in limited terms in the future, but nobody can maneuver in it like a human. So how did we acquire that? And I think the way it went is that the human female had to undergo a massive reconfiguration of her reproductive life cycle. I mean, we mate in a way totally different from other animals. The way it works for all the other animals is that the female of the species comes into a distinct season of receptivity. She gives off an incredibly clear signal. Mm-hmm. The males pick it up. It's usually an olfactory alert. They, they come from miles around. They fight among each other. They strut their stuff. They sing their hearts out. You know, they <laughs> dance till they drop. And then they get the girl. That's mm-hmm. the way it works in all the other species. Mm-hmm. Well, the human male doesn't have a clue as mm-hmm. to what phase in a female's menstrual cycle she's in. In fact, most females don't know. Most women have to go to Walgreens and buy a thermometer because they don't know. So this is an extraordinary development. The other features of the female reproductive life cycle, which are very odd, are that there are 4,000 species of mammals, of which humans are one. 3,999 of the females pump out litters of 8 and 10 Mm -hmm. and 12, kits, cubs, piglets. They don't bleed at all. There's a handful of mammals that menstruate, and of those that do, the, they lose very little blood, and they're very, it's very infrequent. The human female loses the most blood the most often of any other species. Hmm. Now, I think your listeners would agree that blood is a pretty vital right. substance to a mammal. So why is this in our genome? Where, where's the beneficial offset? I mean, why wasn't this culled out a long time ago? And I think that, you know, there's never been a credible theory to explain why human females lose this large amount of blood and have these psychological and physiological changes that are they can't ignore once a month. And then there's another feature of the human female that's very unusual, and that is when women live together in dormitories or convents, they all start cycling together. Now, now chimpanzees don't do that, and baboons don't do that, and other female primates don't do that. The conductor orchestrating this harmony is an inert object 250,000 miles in space called the moon. So could it be a coincidence that a chimpanzee's uh, astral cycle is 37 days, and bonobos are 42, and gorillas are 27, and monkeys are 24? The human female has a, on average, menstrual cycle of 29.5 days. Hmm. A lunar cycle is 29.5 days exactly. Hmm. So if you could imagine thousands of women over thousands of years in training with the moon, harmonizing with each other, mm-hmm. all bleeding at the same time of the month in a very dramatic, there could be nothing more dramatic for an animal to have to witness than external bleeding. And it's occurring whenever that big white object is not in the sky. So eventually, some woman gets it. She said, my God, there's a pattern here. And the pattern is a month in duration. A month is a real long time mm-hmm. to hold constant in an animal's mind. So what you have is you have the word in English, moon, month, menses, and measurement, Mm -hmm. are all derived from the same Greek roots. Hmm. In every language in the world, there are connections between the word month, moon, measurement, and menses. 
the most elaborate lunar calendars, amulets, statuettes, folk stories, myths, all tie these things together worldwide. So I think something very dramatic happened to the human species in the past, and that is that women gained the ability to maneuver in time, and then they taught it to the men, and the men became these ferocious predators. And then the men made a terrifying discovery, and the discovery is that they were going to die. Now, women know they're going to die, too, but men are more frightened of dying than women are. I know this as a surgeon of 35 years. Mm. had to tell a lot of people they have terminal illness. And across the board, in general, men take this news much harder than women do. They want more radical surgery. They want more radical chemotherapy. Mm. In the early stages of the AIDS epidemic, the women were all rushing to find out if they were carriers. And the men who were practicing dangerous lifestyles just simply didn't want to know. Mm. Men don't go to doctors because they don't want to get bad news. So men lamenting the fact that they're going to die, some guy looks at some woman and says, wait a minute, I had sex with this woman nine months ago, and she's having a child that looks just like me. And he gets it. We have become the first species where the male consciously understands that having sex relates to producing offspring that are part him. So then he realizes, here he is fearing death, that he could cheat death if he knows who his children are. He could be a little bit immortal, especially if he gets to name the children. Because naming is a magical act that confers on the namer an obligation to the name. So he goes up to the first woman. He says, you know, now that I've discovered that I could live on through my children, I need to know who my children are. So from now on, you have to be a virgin when I marry you, and I'll stone you to death afterwards. Because that's the only way I can be sure that these kids you're having are mine. And she says, eh, not such a good idea. i got a better one. I want you to stand up in front of all of our friends and family, your mother and father, my mother and father, and take a solemn oath out loud that you promise you're going to keep me supplied with resources so that I can spend my time raising these children that maybe will be yours, but it's your best shot. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, why would I ever agree to such a restrictive arrangement? I mean, everybody knows that a man wants to fool around. Mm-hmm. And she says, do you want to cheat death or do you want to fool around? What's it going to be? And he says, wow. And you know, in every society in the world, there is an institution called marriage in some semblance. And although men marry women for a lot of different reasons, love and lust being way up there, Mm -hmm. let's not lose sight of the fact that the principal reason that a man enters a legal arrangement is to legitimize his heirs in the eyes of his peers. Mm -hmm. He wants to be able to make sure that society knows that when he leaves his weapons, his property, his stocks, his bonds, this is his legal heir because he can have a lineage Mm -hmm. and a legacy and live on through his kids. Huh, fascinating. Uh, You're listening to Dr. Leonard Schlain discussing the ideas in his book, Sex, Time, and Power, How Women's Sexuality Shaped Human Evolution. Um, Well, Dr. Schlain, you've uh, certainly come up with a very fascinating theory, but it seems to me that what you've done is taken a number of phenomena in nature and come up with sort of an ad hoc explanation for this. Is there any evidence to prove that humans actually evolved in a separate way like this? Well, well, we did. You know, that's, that's what's so odd is that, you know, there have been many people that have devoted a whole lifetime trying to explain any one of these traits individually and how it affected the survival or reproductive fitness of the species. I'm tying them all together and saying they were part of one massive mm-hmm. adaptation that taught us how to tell time. You know, in the Genesis story, it's Eve that gains ego consciousness first, and then she teaches it to Adam. And interestingly enough, the punishment that God levels against her is he says, you will bear children in sorrow and sometimes die in childbirth. Well, I think that all the elements of the Genesis story are there, but they're in the wrong order. I think mm-hmm. that Eve did not commit original sin. She exercised original choice. <laughs> and it was the threat of maternal mortality that caused her to figure out time in the first place rather than it being the punishment. Huh. Well, it's, it's really a fascinating theory. 
Uh, I'm curious, how did you become interested in this uh, particular topic? Well, I, I, I wrote an earlier book, The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, which uh -huh. dealt with why global society is so shot through with patriarchy and misogyny, especially when it's clearly evident that every little boy starts out life lo loving his mother. So if all little boys love their mothers, how is it that we have the society structured on an antithetical principle? Mm -hmm. So I examined the effect of learning literacy in that book and what that did to the three Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, that are all based on an alphabetic sacred text. And that, uh, you know, my background is I did vascular surgery, a lot of surgery on the brain, and I've long been interested on right brain, left brain differences. So that book was kind of a combination of a little physiology, a little Marshall McLuhan, and a little understanding of history to understand what happened with the religions of the world, that when people learn, become literate, they adopt patriarchal religions that deny the existence of the goddess and become very patriarchal. When I wrote that book, I was, it was clear to me that there were other things going on in the relations between men and women that go back much earlier. And I think that this business of standing up and acquiring these big brain babies that can't pass through this little narrow bony hole in the female pelvis and started causing women to die in childbirth played a major role in the development and evolution of the human species in addition to the relations between men and women. Um, so you touched on this issue earlier, but I'm curious, what are some of the theories behind why humans became bipeds, which created the conditions necessary for the evolution that you describe? Well, so nobody really knows. Is a, you know, I, in my book, Sex, Time, and Power, I must list about, oh, there must be 17 different theories as to why yeah. we stood up, you know. I mean, there's several mysteries that remain yeah. unsolved. We don't know why we stood up. We don't know why we have this big brain, yeah. you know. We don't know why we have this extraordinary capacity for language. All these questions still remain unanswered. But I think that these three major insights, one, women figured out the connection between sex and pregnancy. Two, men realized they were going to die. Mm -hmm. And three, men realized that they could live on through their heirs if they knew who their children were. Mm -hmm. That these three insights have had such a profound impact on the relationship between men and women that if you look at the world today and you look at relations between any couple, that what's playing out is these... These three, you know, we're the only species where the male has to negotiate okay. sex with a female. Yeah. You know, that doesn't happen in the wild. Right. Well, it certainly is a fascinating idea. I'm just curious, have you gotten any feedback about your ideas? Oh, yeah, I've, I've, had, um, I've had just a five-star review in the um, front page in the Chronicle. I've had emails from professors emeritus of, mm -hmm. of anthropology at UCLA who told me this is a stimulating book, got a lot of new ideas in it. I've been invited to speak to the anthropology department up in Seattle uh, at Edmondson College, and I've also gotten some negative reviews from mm. people who I suspect are a little upset that somebody outside their field comes traipsing through it. But I had that with the other two books, and yeah. the other two books are now used as textbooks <laughs> in art, uh, universities and art schools all over the world, art and physics and yeah. alphabet versus the goddess. Fascinating, and I understand you're you're in the uh, going to be giving some uh, talks in the Bay Area. As yes, well. on on November the fourth, I will be speaking at Cody's, and November the sixth, I'll be speaking at Kepler's down the peninsula. November the third, I'll be at Open Secret in San Rafael, and on the eleventh, I'll be at Books Inc. in Laurel Village. Uh, well, Dr. Schlein, I just want to thank you very much for a very fascinating uh, discussion today, and uh, for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Great, thank you very much. You were just listening to Dr. Leonard Schlein discussing the ideas in his book, Sex, Time, and Power, How Female Sexuality Shaped Human Evolution. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, you can find out what is a Faraday. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Crocs. What's more to come? Wow. Hello, this is Stephen Hawking. Wow. That's right, me, Stephen Hawking. I am trying to donate money to the Galax. Mo-blogging. Do not trifle with me, young man. Trying to donate to the Galax, the Galax fundraiser. How much money can I donate? I wish to donate the whole universe, because I am the master of the universe. I am Stephen Hawking. Oh, wow. Do not trifle with me. Donate to Galax, Stephen Hawking commands. We are the master of the universe. Donate to Galax, says Stephen Hawking. Donate, donate, Galax. Six four two five two five nine. Donate. I am the master of the universe. I'm Stephen Hawking. Oh wow. Oh uh, yes, very well. It's time for the answer to last week's question of the week. It's Mr. British Man, and the question: Who invented the dynamo, the transformer, and the direct current? Well, if you knew the answer, you would know it was Michael Faraday. Ah,、uh, thank you, Mr. Englishman. And now、uh, here's this week's question of the week.、Uh, something I've been wondering for a long, long time: Can heat go from a colder object to a hotter object? This has perplexed me、uh, very, very much. If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail dot com. You want to win anything, but you just know how to chill out. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail dot com. At Berkeley Grocks, I'm Franklin, and I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www dot grocks dot net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.